Hi, this is Rohan Dharmakumar and I'm excited to welcome you to episode 31 of First Principles. I know this was supposed to be an off week for us as a fortnightly show. We used to release new episodes every other Thursday and last Thursday was our episode with Ritesh Agarwal of Oyo Rooms. So, what am I doing today you must be wondering. That's what I'm here to tell you. Starting this week, First Principles is now a weekly podcast. We are going to bring you a fresh conversation every Thursday, but in a slightly different way. You see, the supply of truly original, accomplished and candid founders and business leaders in India is what I'd call a finite resource. So while we'd love to at some point have a roster of guests talking to us every single week, that isn't possible today. So, we're doing the next best thing. We increase the duration of our conversations with leaders we meet to roughly 2 hours each only to split it into two distinct conversations and episodes. That's right. Take today's episode. A couple of weeks ago, you heard my conversation with Karthik Jairaman, the co-founder and CEO of Waycool Foods, an agri-tech startup that distributes and processes fresh produce, grains, staples and milk. It was a wonderfully candid and authentic conversation in which Karthik spoke about complimenting instead of disrupting treading lightly while making decisions and starting up at 40 but what you didn't hear in that conversation is what we're releasing today as an episode episode 31 we talk about why karthik took such a big risk at 40 by jumping from automobiles into a completely different sector agritech He also reflects on his career, what got him here and what keeps him going. We talked about who Karthik is as a leader and as a CEO. What are the habits that he's picked up? What has he been reading and why? We've tied all of this together for today's episode, a part 2 on Karthik's life, career and values. Let's dive right in. Before we get started let me give you some context. In part 1 of our episode with Karthik Jairaman he talked to me about how Waycool functions. And as he was explaining how the organization has grown and changed I couldn't but help notice a very interesting dynamic in the way Waycool functions. How its organizational structure, policies and market strategy grew with the demands of the market, the retailers and the farmers. For instance, Karthik realized that a standard one-size-fits-all credit limit that they had set for their distribution partners ended up impacting the products available to them. So, Karthik suggested quickly increasing the credit limit, to which Waycool's finance team adapted quickly. I wanted to understand this better. That's where we start today's episode. Sounds like I mean you run an organization where every day 
policies are either being created or modified in some form at a small level major level etc how, how do you i mean how does an organization handle this because like how do you build to be an organization where policies are both i think respected and enforced at the same time they're also relaxed or challenged or modified when needed see it's it's not straight forward and uh, we suffer some of the challenges of too frequent changes in direction as well we have uh, you know i'd love to paint a picture that we are perfect in everything but in reality this is very accordion like there are periods where we bunch up a number of changes and there are periods where we sort of chill and uh, keep doing the same thing over and over again and then i have to go dust things up and say hey maybe this is not the best way let's figure out what's going on and, or um, any of my leadership team has to do that that's that's how it really works and uh, th- therefore the right way to do this firstly if the policies are anchored based on the ground realities of the guys who are in the gemba then they are more likely to take if the policies are uh, rooted in the corporate office then it is going to be a little harder to enforce unless it's logical for the guy in the gemba so if folks so like us gemba gemba is the workplace ah. i mean sorry I'm, my manufacturing days keep coming <laughs> back to me so out if the the sales guy on the field uh, has to agree that this is the pro, this is solving a problem for her or him only then the policy will take otherwise you will be enforcing something either the sales person will get frustrated and leave or uh, they will basically find a way around your policy and that's the reality so th- that's the reason field visits again become important uh, what we also observe is that uh, see i am an outsider going to the field and learning i am not bound by any uh, you know uh, biases or filters and that again helps translate this to the people in the corporate office or to the support functions or to the audit function saying hey this is the reality on the ground and therefore you need a way around this uh, so that is really uh, the first filter the second is you can't change this too frequently the re- the right way to do this is you go through a series of large scale transformations and then you get into a kaizen mode which is a continual improvement mode i think our dry groceries business has reached that point they've done a number of large scale experiments transformations the pmf has established they only need to scale and while scaling they have to continually improve as they go and the continual improvement is best done by small teams and then horizontally deployed by the corporate office and the corporate office roles is to put in guardrails to make sure that we're uh, accounting for any potential failure modes in there that's the way i i believe it should be done i will say we are 40% there so just pass we have to get to <laughs> the remaining you you came into this industry like you said from an automotive uh, sector vehicle is a startup i mean you also are a tech startup you're also selling your own software what are some of the changes that you observed in the way that you know in your earlier career in larger more established organizations and way cool i think quite a few factors See, there are the obvious operational factors you got to do a lot of things yourself my first uh, act in the company was carrying crates and sanjay's first act in the company was sitting in front of a truck selling vegetables so all that is fine that everybody goes through that but i think there are some more nuances uh, to this Uh, you have to accept that f- there will be frequent revisions to your own hypothesis and to the way business is done uh, you can't expect that uh, you know there is a template and i follow the template and things happen that's the first lesson that i learned uh, uh, you know starting up versus uh, 
being a company. Waycool is supposed to be a cold chain company. We're not doing that necessarily now. So those changes you have to digest, accept and digest. And it's not easy for somebody coming from corporate to actually accept and digest those changes. The second is your talent acquisition process will be chaotic. What made it easier for you? Because it was a completely different industry and I had no preconceived notions about the industry. I was in child ego mode when I got into the industry. Had I started something in the automotive sector, all my biases would have kicked in. So I still make snide remarks about Tesla. So that's uh, they've got it right, but I still make snide remarks about them because I've got my biases. But uh, it was purely that. I mean, we're all human. Uh, if you're going into a new industry, we are in a childlike state, we are learning, we don't have any preconceived notions. It's usually the counterparty who's teaching you who has preconceived notions, so you have an opportunity to challenge that as well. That's the only reason, to be honest. So, one of my favorite analogies is this this Greek myth, the ship of Theseus, where, like, you know, there is this, like, you know, I mean, uh, ship, uh, which is considered, like, a very important, like, I mean, there's a full mythology behind it. And the Greeks, every year, they take that ship uh, to a particular place and they bring it back. And for hundreds of years, they do that. And every time one of the planks rots, they replace the plank, then they replace the sails and then the oars. So the question is, at the end of, you know, this, is it even the ship of Theseus? Exactly. So as a startup, like, you know, the ship of Theseus analogy is that you keep revising your hypothesis. In your case, for instance, way cool. I mean, is it even the way cool that it started out as. Do you ever think about that at a philosophical level that what is this company that I'm running today? What was it seven, eight years ago? And what will it be seven, eight years into the future? You know, that's a very interesting question. And uh, once in a while, we pull back and revisit what we said we will do and check whether we are on it. Purely coincidentally, we still find ourselves playing to a map that we laid out six to seven years ago. It's not intent. Maybe it's subconscious. But what happens, how we got there is very different from how we thought we will get there. That was our uh, biggest insight. For example, I still have that sketch somewhere on in one of my phones, which shows how we will start with a retail entity, but use that retail to build a large you know, wholesale platform. Then we will get into as deep as contract farming. Then on the front end, we will start adding value, processing and branding. And then we will export. So you mentioned Tesla. This reminds me of that diagram that Elon Musk had made about how he will first launch Correct. the Model 3 and then the next one and the next one. How he will do it. Sorry. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. So uh, that that is the drawing that we had made six years ago. And every time we go back, it looks like we are on that same path. But how we got there is completely different from how we thought we will get there, to be honest. We thought we will scale by servicing Horeca as a space. Then we realized that we don't have the working Horeca capital. Horeca is the hotels, hotels and restaurants, restaurants and, and catering. We don't have the working capital to deploy to service that industry. And it's just too price competitive. So then we pivoted to servicing the small retailer. We found that there was more acceptance in that space. So the path was different, but uh, we, st we are still pointing towards that. I'm honestly not bothered. Right. I mean, what about your investors? You've raised venture capital. That's correct. One of the, I think, I mean, especially as an outsider or what people think is that when you're presenting a, a roadmap or a plan to investors, it's like, you know, the, the it's probably a stereotype that people think that you have such confidence in your three-year plans and you will deliver as per this. But in reality, it's anything but, right? When you go back and have conversation with your board and investors... How have those conversations been when you're like, look, I mean, we said we do this. 
or we'd reach here but we reach here through some completely different paths what do they tell you see that's an interesting question uh, and uh, i will say that because our investors are not the standard set of investors who are diversified they've been a lot more engaged and since we we catch up every week if you're catching up every week then you know what's happening in the company and you are aligned with the directional changes that we are taking so the so, frequency of sampling also that matters because then exactly. it's not coming as a shock at the end of a year or 6 months exactly so that that's something that has helped us so far but having said that you touched upon an important point uh, i i feel that different sectors require different investment vehicles and different uh, approaches any investor will discount your 3 year plan that's something we all know right their own internal sensitivity analysis etc will be very yeah, i different. feel it's almost like this kabuki dance right mm-hmm. where both sides know that look you know we need these so the people the entrepreneurs or founders who are preparing the 3 year plans know right. okay we got to put a lot of stuff here so it looks very real and the investors like you said they are discounting it correct but at the same time that document and must be exchanged and exactly. that handshake must happen exactly but uh, i feel that that all that is driven by the fact that you've got to deliver a certain value at a certain exit point etc i think in the long term different instruments are needed for different sectors you can't apply an instrument that was originally designed for a moore's law based industry onto something like agriculture where this year's mistakes will be discovered next year so this requires a different kind of capital and uh, i think those kind of capital pools are still forming and those investors will be more understanding of the sector it's interesting you say that because one of the things that we've been reading over the last couple of years is that the agri tech space or the overall agro space in india has seen a significant rise in investor interest as well and 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 are you seeing that you said that investor pools are forming so has is that change happening fast enough i don't think so i think uh, we are still at the periphery of uh, the investment uh, uh, lens to be honest and uh, yes there has been an interest the i think the way one of interest was driven by uh, uh, the same prism with which most investors looked at other sectors such as commerce i think most of them quickly discovered that that is not really the way to look at the sector wave 2 of interest is still building up the fact is the gestation period for this industry is a little different a little longer but uh, there are possibilities of exponential path ultimately what do you want you want a rocket ship to go on a parabolic path and launch you in an exponential path that's really what you're looking Again, for a, a wonderful analogy i've never heard that before okay. but yeah very interesting so uh, yes that that is applicable in this industry also but it's it's going to i mean that rocket's going to lift a little harder than others to give you an example when we invested in uh, siddhivinayak agro we we are investors ourselves I mean, uh, the founders are the doins of the industry when it comes to the potato space. And for eleven years, they had been going on a linear growth path. What we understood when, because we spent more than two years with them as customers, and as you know, I, Hemanji uh, is my mentor as well. So at that point in time, we understood that uh, you know, for them to develop a new seed takes five years, and for you to develop the fourth generation of that seed, you've got to go through four seasons of potatoes. So it's taken nine years to develop the first gen, fourth generation, which is what is sold to the farmers. And once you do that, the number of seeds that you are growing grows exponentially. So we got lucky that we were able to invest at the right time, 
and that company which was doing about 60 crores of revenue a year and a half ago finished last year at 160 crores of revenue is pat positive as a company this year they'll do even better so if if an investor had the ability to be patient for more than 10 years they would have reaped exponential benefits at this stage and it will really scale up at this point in time because it's geometric progression the the production of potatoes like geometric progression so the amount of material that you can sell goes up drastically and the product is a distinctive product. When it was raining like cats and dogs in Maharashtra, when the traditional varieties gave 20% yield, my potato gave 80% yield, which means it's a climate resilient potato. So the product is differentiated. Mm. It is available in geometric progression. And consequently, the growth has to be exponential. Right. So, I mean, this, this pops another thought in my head. Earlier, we talked about branded products at the consumer level. Yes. Now you're kind of taking that back and saying that, look, those branded products exist because there is innovation and branding happening at the seed level yes. or at the variety level as well. Yes. Is there a lot of that happening right now? I mean, in in the produce space, in the fruit space as well. Globally, where we're yes. going to see differentiated varieties of um, vegetables and fruits because of that innovation which is taking place. Yes. Globally, yes. I mean, even in India, red okra, for example, has been a recent introduction three or four seed companies have launched the product over here and uh, it's received a very good response we used to sell seven varieties of watermelon uh, the one with the yellow flesh inside mm, the one mm. that's yellow outside and red inside uh, so there is a lot of innovation that's starting to hit the markets it's still a little chaotic and unorganized but yes there is uh, substantial innovation and that will become a source of differentiation the question here is the medium by which the differentiated product reaches the consumer has been the challenge all along. Uh, our modern trade portfolio of so it companies... it comes back to a continuous supply chain. Market linkage. Again, farm yes. to fork. Who is the market but. linkage provider that's willing to experiment and take the risk? When we ran the retail chain, we, we launched these varieties of uh, uh, watermelons. They became popular. Now, all the retail chains have started launching those products. So, somebody's got to take that first bet. Uh, for it to reach the market. But yes, what you stated is very critical. Unless you innovate at the seed and innovate in the package of practices, in the long term, you will build a commerce company and not a technology company. <coughs> right? Technology doesn't refer only to information technology. It's a very thin sliver of this. All this is where it lies. Now, the question is, again, this brings us back to the lens of capital. Capital must have the patience to allow companies to experiment and within quotes burn money over there rather than uh, you know today as you know the focus has shifted from growth to profitability and it's profitability with an obsession are you cutting fat or are you cutting muzzle i can guarantee you that most of us are cutting muzzle in the claim that we are cutting fat that's the reality so far we have resolutely refused to cut muzzle we think we'll get there but uh, uh, you know, you can't leave your Horizon 3 investments because you're worried about Horizon 1. And that requires enlightened capital to come in and make sure that, okay, as long as you're on this path, it's fine. Continue investing over there. Uh, that narrative gets oversimplified nowadays. And that's something that we'll have to worry about. Uh, you said, I'm, I'm quoting you, when you turn 40, when a midlife crisis hits you, some people buy a Ferrari, others start up. What was the midlife crisis that hit you? 
it was exactly this right you felt that you'd done a lot of work i mean there was a lot of distance but limited displacement hmm. and you start wondering in uh, 20 years hence are you going to have run a long way there's a lot of physics in your analogies i was just thinking what distance versus displacement earlier you talked about rockets parabolic path versus like you know um releasing but yeah it's very interesting i rarely hear so much of physics based analogies in uh yeah maybe subconsciously <laughs> i like physics i don't know but uh it felt that way and it felt that any career in a regular corporate environment is going to be that way you the worst regret you can have is looking back after another 20 years and saying what have i done with my life other than earn money and you know take my family to a safer place that's not that's not done you should have left the world a slightly better place than how you found it you should have otherwise th- th- you're not different from an animal if you haven't done that and that was a very strong feeling in me and i was feeling bound by this so it's not about personal glory or your name being etched in uh, in a permanence anywhere but on those last 7 minutes you when your life sort of flashes before your eyes you should feel happy no that's really what mm. motivated me and that's really as a side like you know i mean i i and seema i mean when we started the can i was 40 as well right. so i could completely empathize um, or connect with like you know what you were feeling as well but please uh, so that was really what the trigger and that's really what i was feeling when i was at 40 and you know why do uh, why does the midlife crisis happen because the people try to create an identity for themselves saying hey i have arrived in life i have done this and so on not i have achieved something in life i think achieving hmm. something is, arrived versus achieved i think achieved hmm. is more important than achievement takes time stick in ideas so far what are your definitions of success and failure you built something that stay stands alone and outlasts you you built a pool of people that can run an asset and that asset is recognized by a majority of the people as a business as a force for good rather than uh, an asset that uh, has caused damage that's really my definition is of there, success um you i i keep detecting this um i think uh, references to doing good treading lightly etc across theme of conversations that we having where did that come from for you is it something that came you know while you were growing up is there some influence to you that that it's so important for you i wouldn't say it's i, I can't recall the trigger but uh, you know my first uh, exposure to some form of activism was in college when uh, we had this organization called green canopy in iit so i was an environmentalist who cut trees that was an ironic uh, situation mm, what, i mean what's the context so uh, I, i you know a lot of india is invaded by an alien species called uh, prosopis juliflora prosopis destroys your soil and sucks up the water and prevents other plants from growing nearby and it's a very very rapidly growing weed prosopis had invaded the iit campus at that time it's a weed not a tree it's a weed so it's like closer to a lantana kind of thing like, like okay, uh, parthenium uh-huh, equivalent uh-huh, but much nastier so uh, if you go to ramanathapuram district mm. there are forests of prosopis where cows have gone and got lost and become feral it's wow, is that, that sounds is <laughs> scary yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. so uh, uh, that's a nasty bush which which at that point there was a lot of fear that it will wipe out the natural biodiversity in iit madras 
uh, you know the way prosopis used to be removed was you either have to dig it out from, from the, the roots, roots mm. or you drill it and you pour acid into the roots mm. in which case to nothing else grows yeah, yeah, and but, nothing else yeah. grows there so we were literally and there were no jcbs in those days so we were literally going out of the bare hands uh, either ch- first chopping the tree and then digging out the roots that was my environmental activism there uh, i think for me it was still satisfying because it was action rather than activism i think genuinely we should do stuff and not just raise awareness about stuff and that helped me over there when i was in the us one of my good friends had started up what's today a very large platform uh, it's called aid india and uh, we did a bit to help him raise capital and uh, you know every wednesday we used to gather together and stuff newspapers and that gave us some incremental income which we gave to aid india and so on so uh, that uh, started exposing me a bit to the social side but then when i came back to india i found that many of the organizations in india were more about activism than action and therefore i said that this doesn't work for me it's better if you are building something which is in your normal course of life but which does it the right way this was reinforced when i spent a good year in a cement company as part of my mckinsey work very interesting company and the way they thought was very very different i was speaking to the plant head you know they, they had the most sophisticated outbound logistics in the world i mean very very they use ships they use bulkers and all way ahead of anybody else but the limestone that they were bringing in was coming in tractors so as a mckinsey consultant i said that cost you know why are you doing that why can't you bring in conveyors and things like that and the answer they gave was very interesting you know he said when uh, managing director when he started this said that you know you're taking the land from these farmers to convert them into limestone mines you can always pay them a lump sum but if you pay them a lump sum they'll misuse that money and then they will not have a source of livelihood instead i signed an agreement it's a gentleman's agreement that i will use the farmers tractors to move the limestone so that they get steady income and therefore you're not and the tractor continues to be useful exactly. and playing two different roles like you know on their field as well as on to their tra- field. okay they've done more the mines that were exhausted have been converted to ponds and therefore that area has become a three crop region rather than a single crop region hmm. to me that was a glaring example of business as a force for good it's it's a marginally higher investment that they have made and by the way it, it helps them also there are a lot of disruptions in that area there are groups of people who get into clashes and so on but they never disturb the supply chain so the supply chain continuity is maintained farmers are supportive of the company rather than you know anybody who does mining is seen as inimical to the native population here the farmers are supportive and the farmers have gotten an additional material benefit in that the you know exhausted mines have been converted to lakes and now there are three crop territory rather than a single crop territory it showed to me that win wins are possible that sort of it still sticks in my mind um you said that vehicle is different from other startups in in the way that like you know you're trying to build for the long horizon you're building to last but also that you want to develop a company with capable leaders and low attrition how successful have you been because if there is one thing that i think regardless of startup founders that i've met that i think everyone has struggled to deal with is low attrition and building leaders for the long term 
I would, uh, if you had asked me this about a year ago, I would have said we've been fairly successful. But now I'm facing challenges, to be honest. I think we need to shift gears now a bit to get back to that rhythm that we were having. What happens is the following. Uh, in an industry like ours where, uh, uh, you know, it's an established industry, you initially start hiring based on the people you trust, those who have fought the battles with you on the ground. Then gradually you start bringing in domain experts. Domain experts will align because uh, they understand that they are there for their expertise and not their managerial capability. Then you start bringing in professional managers. That's when uh, differences start emerging in companies on how it should be run. We've been lucky with our professional managers. Most of them have been able to adapt to a startup. But then a professional manager should be treated like one and be allowed to run the business the way they want. The rest of the organization has to sort of make way for the professional manager to run the business they want. What is that balance? That's an organizational transformation as well. That's right. The original folks who have kind of grown and learned with the business versus exactly. the new professional managers, right? Exactly. And then what happens to the original folks who have grown? You've got to... See, they're the true warriors who have taken the biggest risks. Of course, they should get rewarded for their risks with ESOP system, but they should also be given meaningful meaty roles. How is that balance achieved? Is the struggle that we are going through right now as an organization. Uh, while that hasn't been the driver of attrition, that does cause friction. And we're constantly meeting to figure out ways around that friction. So we're constantly reorganizing in a way that, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, we are Has not... being in Chennai helped? Vis-a-vis, -vis, let's say you were headquartered out of Bangalore. See, it has helped in many ways when it comes to running the business. But it's obviously not very helpful from a capital raise perspective. The Firstly, Tamil Nadu infrastructure is really why we exist today. I was able to predict the arrival of my trucks to plus minus 15 minutes and I was rarely wrong. We have good roads, good industrial infrastructure. With one warehouse, I'm able to serve the city. Traffic till recently hasn't been much of a problem. Power, water, most of those issues are sorted in, in the state. That helped from a physical perspective. Uh, secondly, I think uh, it's a quieter market with more serious entrepreneurs from whom you can learn. So I learned a lot from the peer group, the names that I was mentioning yeah. to you as well. I think we learned a lot. We are naturally a little frugal and grounded because we are there. Uh, but the fact is certain kinds of talent and capital are better source from Bangalore. So we do have a significant presence in Bangalore. And I genuinely believe that capital could do better to reach beyond Bangalore and Gurugram. And I don't think it has attempted hard enough. That's my view. On your personal bandwidth, I, you know, one of the things that you said is that be hands off, but deep dive once in a while. And you've talked about the concept of the T-shaped uh, manager or leader. Yeah. Um, do you want to kind of tell us why the T-shaped uh, leadership or managerial model appeals to you? Uh, the, it's somewhat connected uh, to your previous question. If I could just ask question. you as well what the T-shaped manager is. Yeah, uh, it's somewhat connected to the previous question. Right? When a particular part of your business has established PMF and you've got professionals running Product it. Product market fit. Product market fit. And you've got professionals running it. It doesn't, we shouldn't crowd the professionals out. And there you touch lightly. My job becomes to arrange for capital to be provided for the professional and any you know accesses that they need to fulfill their job. 
when the product market fit is yet to be established there are three situations where i believe the entrepreneur has to dive deep one where product market fit is yet to be yet to be established second where there are problems and third where it is a horizon 2 or horizon 3 activity uh, there are early stage work streams where i try to get more deeply involved for example this idea of distributing and branding fruit i am a little deeply involved over there because it's still a first of a kind even in india that's where the pmf is still being worked out there are areas where occasionally we run into problems in terms of operational issues etc which are more cross functional in nature usually it's a trade off between safeguards versus entrepreneurial freedom sometimes it's a trade off between are you solving for the operational metric of cost versus service level efficiency versus responsiveness there i have to dive a little deep and provide direction the third in my head which is more important is uh, someone has to see around the corner and start getting prepared and by definition the executives will not do it because they are caught up in day to day they may be capable but they will not have the time to do it that becomes my job preparing for what uh, what could happen next and start building you know seeds for horizon 2 and 3 becomes my job i mean subject to you are having enough time and capital you have to keep focusing on those as well all right um how do you look at your habits professional or personal are you a person who's consciously aware of habits and tries to inculcate habits or change habits yes i think uh, it's uh, something that i've tried to do continually uh, because you when you, you know you have to constantly form new habits based on what you are picking up as signals uh, it's not easy to go out in the field for example uh, it's not easy to maintain punctuality for example but these are important habits for somebody who's running the show here because people read these as signals if i make it on time for a meeting then everybody makes it on time if i finish a meeting on time then everybody finishes on time if i'm there out in the field the people your team will also start going out to the field and so on so it's important to do that there is inertia you have to break the inertia and get into these rhythms simultaneously it's important to build uh, a certain rhythm in your daily life for example the first 3 4 hours are for me and uh, very when do they start 5 5 through 9 is for me uh, i do a bunch of things that are intensely personal my walk my spiritual activities all of that take up the first 4 hours uh, one and a half hour break at in the middle is for me and my family if if i'm in chennai so i go home for lunch every time spend time with my wife she also comes home at the same time and that's dedicated and post uh, 7:30 it's my time this is something that i am clear about i have a separate slot between 9 and 10 in the night where i work on occasion but broadly this is how we would do it i mean i mean we are i am a 7 day week guy because that's the nature of our industry so i still do the 70 hours <laughs> but this is the way i have tried to break up my uh, times and uh, within those slots you will find that it's a little regimented i have been quite regimented about what i do because it helps everybody around you gets aligned around your regimented uh, has there been a habit that you either recently in the last 6 or 12 months started or stopped 
podcasts have been started i mean no connection <laughs> with this conversation but i have start i listened to podcasts for at least an hour because you know when you when you are in your exercising mode or walking you can do that rather than just listen to music uh, you know you're absorbing something the other is voice notes is something that i've started when i'm walking around you know you your ideas also get triggered when you're in doing a brisk walk so i share voice notes to the team whenever i get those ideas and start pumping that out so these are two habits that i'm starting to build now um you said you your reading uh has reduced over time uh do you do you read do you still manage to read any books because earlier when we were talking you said you were one of the fans of the original the magazine uh, the business features um style of journalism um and we were talking about how that's kind of reduced and like you know it's no longer it's well past its heyday but do you read or do you try to read as well or is it shifted I, largely I listen a lot more than read and uh, have I you tried read, audio books I have tried audio books so does it work for you it works for me because uh, i i absorb it while i'm doing stuff for example are you the 1x speed person or are you the i'll speed it up to 1.5x no, or 2x no 1x is fine <laughs> because i know a lot for... of people i have colleagues who are like 1.5x 1.75x and i can yeah. never just understand it. my daughter is at 1.5 to 2x i'm ah, too old nice. for that so <laughs> uh, it's a normal how 1X. old is your daughter my daughter is uh, 16 so uh, i think uh, i listen a lot my Of course uh, there's a lot of business podcasts that I listen to but I get fascinated by history and humor that's really my staple can I ask you for your history and humor podcast recommendations so I'll I'll give you book recommendations mm. uh, I am right now going through the series by RC Majumdar on India and uh, there's this author that we I discovered recently who this is a 105 year old book on the history of South India that i'm reading right now i can't remember the author's mm. name on the top of it no, you can me- mail it to me later we'll add it uh, into the show notes and i, and I got it from shriram's uh, podcast so i listened to shriram is a historian who yes. documents chennai history quite extensively so i listen to his podcasts and uh, watches videos regularly you know it's rare to find folks who talk about the history of the common person and there's so much to learn from those than uh, you know Uh, just uh, listening to kings and queens and other hagiographies so that's interesting what do your weekends look like saturday's work we work uh, six days it's, i mean the office is closed but i always go to uh, some facility or the other and uh, saturday is when my temple visits happen i visit at least a couple of big temples in chennai i mean you're in chennai 33500 temples in your <laughs> state so a lot of options so i do that sunday half a day is with the family and half a day is with, uh, uh, split between my parents and reflection and that's really how it operates we used to be a lot more weekend travel folks but daughter is in 11th so uh, travel has come down a lot do you have personal interests like you know beyond like you know the stuff what we've discussed is there something that you've gone deep into geeked out in recent times I have a few interests. I have an uh, enduring interest in automobiles. That's why I got into that space in the first place. And uh, the second is in public policy. I used to be interested in politics but uh, I realized that it's not my cup of tea. But public policy is something that is of interest to me. Infrastructure and 
infrastructure areas are of interest to me and the history of the common human in various civilizations is something that fascinates me and if i weren't doing this if i choose to retire i'd probably do a phd in history that's the direction in which i will go so uh, that would be a very interesting career arc but i'm sure there's a lot of time for that as well thank you for listening to first principles the weekly leadership podcast from the kens newsroom i've been waiting a long time to say weekly instead of fortnightly meanwhile and in parallel the first principles newsletter is also weekly now we're hitting new records each week for community participation with subscribers sending in book recommendations personal habits favorite songs and of course silent sunday photographs so if you're a fan of mental models leadership decision making entrepreneurship and self reflection you can rely on us twice each week thursdays with the first principles podcast and sundays with the first principles newsletter you can find links to sign up or submit recommendations in the show notes finally if you like our work please tell us rate or review first principles wherever you get your podcasts it's honestly the best judge of a podcast quality and the most reliable way for someone new to find us this episode was hosted by me rohan dharmakumar and produced by anushka mukherjee the audio editing is by rajiv cn our resident audio engineer see you next thursday